Thank you, Annette. And I want to also extend my welcome to those of you from Parkside. The other thing I wanted to mention um, is just the ongoing work of our pastoral search team that's been going on now for about five weeks or so. We've come to the point where we've actually uh, have a, a church profile and a, a, a pastoral profile for the next pastor that uh, we've, we've approved and we're getting ready to distribute. And if you go to our website, uh, it'll be one of the things that's on the banner. So you can actually click on it, go to that page and, and download the, <clears throat> uh, the profile. And I encourage you to do that. We had people on our search team who, when we got all through with the profile, they read it and they said, boy, I would, I would like to go to this church. You know, <laughs> it, it really presents uh, Harbor City in a great way. And so I encourage you to do that. Those of you who are online, don't go yet. You got to wait until after the service. I probably lost most of you just then. Uh, you're probably already there and looking at it, but uh, encourage you to do that at some point. About um, 15, 20 years ago, I came to the point as a parent where I was helping my kids through their late teenage, early 20 year uh, time frame and and inevitably, I was dealing with them over things that they were discouraged about. Or, I mean, there were, there were things that they were happy about with their life, but also some discouragements and things that um, they felt like in some ways their life got derailed at some point. And they were just kind of struggling with that. And I came up with this phrase that I kept repeating to them at that point, that simply the past is prologue. The past is prologue. That's the title of my sermon this morning. I kept saying that over and over to them because I wanted them to understand that their life wasn't over. It's just, you know, the past is prologue to whatever God is going to do uh, for you in the future. I was really kind of enamored with those words. I thought that I actually had, was the first one to ever come up with that, with that phrase, the past is prologue. At one point, I think I Googled it because in my mind, I was probably thinking, has anyone else picked this up and are they quoting me? Am I getting credit for this phrase? And as I Googled it, I, I discovered that someone had beat me to it. Uh, William Shakespeare beat me to it, <clears throat> but only by like 400 years, you know. And at that point, I came to the conclusion that original thoughts are an overrated thing. You know, it really doesn't matter that much. Uh, Shakespeare had that quote in, a, in his play, The Tempest, where uh, the, the two, two of the main figures, Antonio and Sebastian, are actually plotting uh, to murder Sebastian's father so that Sebastian can take over the realm. And Antonio's trying to convince him to move ahead and do this, and he, he says what's past is prologue. And, and it's interesting that Shakespeare scholars have tried to figure out what exactly did Shakespeare mean when he said that? What's Antonio's meaning? And there were a couple of uh, ways of looking at it. One was the idea that the past is really just insignificant. It's insignificant because there's this bright and glorious future ahead of us. If you'll only just do the deed and take over the kingdom, we'll move ahead. The past is prologue. It's insignificant. There's another strain of, of scholars who feel that what it really is talking about uh, is that the past is critical. The past is critical because it defines the present and it determines the future. And it was almost in the, in the sense of it being a setting the table for fate to occur in your lives. I wanted to um, 
uh, try to carve a path for actually a third meaning this morning uh, in the text that we're going to look at. And that third meaning would be one that, that's characterized by grace and restoration and refocus and redirection. And, we're, and to do that, we're going to look at the life of, of Peter in John chapter 21 is where we're going to end up. Uh, but when we come to John 21, which is one of those resurrection appearances, so we're still doing kind of an Easter uh, Easter thought here this morning. This is the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to, to Peter and some of the other disciples. Uh, but when we come to that, what we find is Peter is stuck in his past. That's where it starts. But it ends with Peter having a new vision for his future. Peter's journey is one that is very uh, striking to us. If you, if you know anything about Peter, you know that he was just this individual that had really high highs and really low lows. And at one point he was, uh, well, he was one of the first disciples that Jesus called. He and his brother Andrew were fishing. That was their occupation. And uh, Jesus called to them and, and said, from now on, I want you to be not fishers of fish, but I want you to be fishers of men. And they cast down their nets and they followed Jesus. And from that point on, Peter was kind of the, the lead voice for the disciples, it seems like. And sometimes he was saying good stuff. Other times he was sticking his foot in his mouth. At one point, toward the end of Jesus's ministry, he actually thinks it's okay for him to start taking on the role of correcting Jesus when Jesus was getting things mixed up. At one point, Jesus, it says that Jesus began to talk to his disciples about what was ahead, that he would have to go to Jerusalem, and there he would suffer. And, and he was talking about the, the cross that was in the near future. And uh, Peter, when he heard Jesus talk about suffering, uh, he said to the Lord, Lord, it may it never be. It's not going to be that way. You don't understand. And it's at that point that Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> uh, that's kind of a low point of Peter's comprehension. Get thee behind me, Satan. Because he said, you're minding things of this world. And my mind is my heart, my mission, my goal is somewhere else. Um, in the Last Supper, it, it was still going on because at, at one point in the Last Supper, Jesus turned to all the disciples and said, you're one by one, you're going to desert me before this night is over. And what did Peter say? He stood up and he said, Lord, all of these, looking at all the other disciples, these may desert you, but I never will. And it's then that Jesus says to Peter, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. Or before he crows, you're going to deny me three times, is what he said to Peter. Um, later that evening, Peter, at the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter um, was still riding that high of thinking that he was a cut above, a little bit different than all the other disciples, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And we have that scene where when they come to arrest Jesus, what, is, what does Peter do at that point? Uh, it says that he drew his sword and cut off the ear of the Roman guard Malchus cut off the ear. Whenever I used to read that story, in my mind, I always envisioned uh, a Zorro-like character. How many of you grew up watching Zorro on TV? And Zorro was this masked guy who had this long sword, and he would, he would do this kind of thing with a sword. And I, I pictured Peter walking up to Malchus and, and kind of zipping his ear off 
and, and thinking, well, that's what's going on here. But it probably wasn't anything like that because Peter, for one, didn't have that kind of sword. Peter was a fisherman. One of the tools of his trade would have been more like a scabbard or, or a long knife that was rough. And, and it was probably that which he picked up. The, the soldier, um, Malchus, was probably wearing one of those conehead helmets, you know, uh, with, that was pointed at the top and kind of came down. And so what really probably happened is Peter, in his zeal for Jesus, and basically saying, let's go, guys, he took that longer, uh, you know, dagger that he had in his loincloth, in his loin belt, and he pulled it out, and he had it over his head, and he tried to crash it down on Malchus's head, trying to split his head in half, probably but it slid off that helmet and took his ear off. <laughs> okay, that's probably more, uh, more like what really happened in that scene. It was a brutal scene, but then remember what happened at that point? Jesus reached down and picked up the ear in the dirt, and he put it back on Malchus's head and he healed it. And I think it's at that point that Peter probably began to realize, I may not have this whole thing figured out. <laughs> And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, put your swords away. If my kingdom were of this world, then you'd, it'd be right for you to fight. But that's not what I'm here to do. And the soldiers took Jesus off, and Peter followed from a distance wondering, what just happened? What just happened? As long as he was in the know, he felt he was in control. But now all of a sudden, he's confused. He's no longer feeling like he's in control of the events that are taking place. And he follows Jesus into this courtyard where he's tried. And very quickly, there's a little servant girl who says, don't I recognize you as being one of those who followed Jesus? And Peter says, no, I'm not, I'm not one of his followers. And then a little bit later, some others were around a fire and they asked him if he wasn't he one of those. And he says, no, I'm not a follower of his. And finally, a third one asked him the same question. And he says, I don't know the man. And at that point, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said just hours earlier at the Last Supper, that before the rooster crowed, he would deny him three times. In Luke's account of that third denial, when the rooster crows, Luke says that Peter looked across the courtyard and Jesus was looking back at Peter. And can you imagine that look, what it, what it held in my mind, I think of Jesus' look at Peter as one of compassion and tenderness and saying, Peter, I tried to tell you this was going to happen. You didn't believe me. I tried to tell you. But Peter looking at Jesus would have been a look of utter shame that he was no different than all the others, that he had denied his Lord three different times. That's where our story begins. Now, Jesus appeared to Peter, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the other, other 12. And I always, we don't have an account of that particular meeting, I don't believe. I don't think that's what's going on in John 21. I think it's something prior to John 21. And boy, it would have been wonderful to, uh, to just see how Peter and Jesus interacted with one another um, at that point. I'm sure Jesus uh, reached out to Peter in a way that expressed his forgiveness. And Peter would begin to put together the pieces that his 
relationship with God wasn't going to be based on what he did, but it was going to be based on what Jesus did. And that Jesus went to the cross to die for all of those failures and sins that we've committed that that create a barrier between us and God. And ultimately the gospel is that Jesus says, if you trust in what I've done for you, um, you can have that relationship back. You can have that relationship restored. And I'm I'm convinced that Jesus had that kind of conversation with Peter. You're forgiven, Peter. Uh, you can move on from this. But can you relate to how Peter must have felt when we come to John chapter 21? He had delusions of grandeur. He was a legend in his own mind. Maybe you felt that at times in your own life. You had this idea of what you would do in, in life or what you become. But, but those great expectations have left you at some point with a deep disappointment, a discouragement, maybe even despair over what actually has taken place in your life. And that's where we find Peter in John 21. And here's the, here's the setting in verse 1 through 5. It says that afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would have been John and James, and two other disciples were together. And Simon Peter told them, I'm going out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. And early the next morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And they answered, no. I want you to notice three things real quickly about Peter just from this setting at this point in the story. The first thing is this, that he really has redefined himself in light of his failure. He's redefined himself in light of his failure. When Peter says, I'm going to go fish, I don't think that was just a statement of, hey, it's, we're hungry, we have nothing to eat, let's go fish. I think Peter's reflecting on something far greater. When Jesus had called him, he said, you're not going to fish for fish anymore. You're going to fish for men. And Peter felt, even though he'd been forgiven, that his opportunity to really be a fisher of men was something that had come and gone. And when he says, I'm going to go fish, it's a turning point as he sees it in his life. I'm going back to becoming a fisher of fish. And so secondly, the thing to see here is that he's retreated to his comfort zone. Uh, he can fish. That's what he's thinking. I can't fish for men, but I can fish for fish. There's no more daring claims or big agenda. He's saying, I want to do what I know that I can do. And how often do we do that in the face of failure? Uh, we retreat uh, into something that we know and are pretty well convinced that we can handle this. We can do this. And we retreat there because it's an opportunity for us to, to kind of regather ourselves and feel good about what we're doing. But the third thing that we see in this, in this text is even though he's retreated back into this comfort zone, he's frustrated because Jesus says, haven't you any fish? And they say, no, they fished all night. And he says, no, we don't have any, any fish. And Peter's probably thinking to himself, now I can't even fish for fish. How much lower can it go? than that. And that's where Jesus enters in 
and he begins, he has this encounter with Peter, which is very striking. The first thing that he does is that he reveals himself to Peter. In verse 6, he says, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that would have been John, he said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. So Jesus reveals himself to Peter and the other disciples, and they come onto shore, and they find that uh, they didn't see Jesus fishing. It didn't say that Jesus fished. So how did those? How did Jesus get those fish that were already on the coals? Some have suggested, well, when you're Jesus, you can just tell the fish to jump on the fire. Maybe that's all that that took place here. Some miraculous kind of thing that that Jesus did. But he goes on. Jesus wants to refresh Peter. Now he says he said to them, "Bring some of the fish you've just caught." So Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Uh, Jesus is refreshing Peter. He says, go get, go get some more of your fish. Bring them in. We'll have a bigger fish fry than what, what I have here already on the, on the coals. And so it says it was the, the net was full of large fish, that there were actually 153 fish that were there. I, um, always fascinated when numbers are thrown out like that. 153. Why why did um, the writer here, John, say 153 fish? There's an interesting um, approach that some commentators take to that. I started reading one of them last night, and they, they made the observation that 153 is a triangular number. Does anyone know what that even means? Some of you may. A triangular number is the numbers that occur when you add consecutive numbers up. So like if you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, that's 10. And 10 is a triangular number. That's easy because it's bowling, you know. We all, always can think of that triangle and so forth. But if you keep going all the way up to 15 plus 16 plus 17, you get to 153. So 153 is a triangular, triangular number from 17. And then the writer was saying, now, if you go to Ezekiel and you look at this, uh, you know, 17th word in this chapter, and by this time my eyes are glazing and I'm thinking, there's got to be a better explanation than this to why there's 153. And my my simple explanation, friends, is, is this. It's because there were 153 fish. That's, that's That's all there is to this. And it's one of those interesting facts that John just throws out there to uh, to really liven the whole historical <clears throat> import of, of the account that he's giving here. 
But he gives these, uh, bring, they bring the fish in, they, they refresh Peter. And then the third thing that Jesus wants to do is to restore Peter. <clears throat> and so he has this interaction with Peter beginning in verse 15, where it says that when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, one of the things that's really obvious here is that on the, on the, in the aftermath of Peter denying the Lord three times, Jesus is giving to Peter the opportunity to declare his love for Jesus three times. I think that's significant. But there's more that's going on here. There's more that's going on because I think what Jesus wants to do more than anything else is, is to change the way that Peter is going to think about his past from this point forward. He wants to change the way he thinks about his past. And to really understand why I say that, you have to uh, go further than the English language here in John chapter 21. Um, I'm sure that many of you, maybe most of you here, uh, know the fact that in the Greek language, there's several words for love that are mentioned. There's four that are used in the Bible, but I'm only going to talk about two this morning. The one is agape love. That's the love that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the highest form of self-sacrificial love that one can have for someone else. It's the love that God loves us with. Self-sacrificing, ultimate kind of love. Kind of the next stage down is the word phileo. And it's the word that, that we get our, uh, our, the name of the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's not the city of self-sacrificing love. It's a city of brotherly love. So phileo is uh, kind of a notch down from agape. It's not at that level but it's a strong affection for someone uh, that you have. And so now what I want to do is reread those verses, but to plug in the Greek words that were used for that. And I think it's going to enlighten us to what Jesus is really doing here with Peter. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? When he says more than these, I think Jesus is looking at all the other disciples because wasn't that Peter's claim? You know, Lord, they may desert you, but I won't. I have that. I, I'm willing to die if need be for you. I'm willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. That's my love for you. And Jesus says, Simon Peter, do you agape me more than these? And here's what Peter says in response. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. So right away, gone is the bluster. Gone is the braggadocia. Gone is this being a legend 
in his own mind that he's going to be different, a cut above everyone else. And he says, Lord, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I have a self-sacrificing love for you because I failed in that. But you know that I love you. I have strong affection for you. And Jesus tells him, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. And then again, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He's, Jesus is kind of offering a little bit of bait. He knows what's going on here. And Peter won't take it. He says, Lord, no, I'm not going to make that claim. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. But then we come to the third time, and Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And it says Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you phileo me? You see what's going on here? Jesus had thrown out the agape word twice. The third time he says, Peter, but do you really even phileo me? And Peter feels the shame of knowing what Jesus is doing, that he started with that ultimate kind of love. Now he's dropping it a notch and saying, Peter, are you even here? And Peter was hurt because the third time Jesus said, do you phileo me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. And you know that I phileo you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What's going on here, friends, is that God, <clears throat> through his son Jesus, is meeting Peter at the point of his failure. And he's telling Peter, I'm not through with you yet. You still have a future. The past is prologue. It's not fate. It's not irrelevant to what's going on. But there's a third way. There's the way of forgiveness. And there's a way of grace that gives to you a future. I quoted a few weeks ago the phrase that Brian Stevenson used. It actually comes from uh, Sister Helen Parisian, who wrote the book Dead Man Walking. She said, people are more than the worst thing they've ever done in their lives. Peter needed to let that sink into his heart there by the Sea of Galilee. I'm more than that. Jesus sees me as more than that. And Jesus sees us, friends, as more than that. How are you processing the failures in your life? Have you allowed them to define you? Have they allowed you to define your present? Have you, have they, have you allowed them to gut your future? because you can't see beyond them? Jesus says to us, we still have a future. You may say, Doug, you don't understand. I blew it as a teenager. <sighs> Life's cruel, isn't it? Because by the time we're 20, think of how many decisions we've made that set a course for our lives. You know, it's just kind of crazy when you think about it. And you may think back to some of those decisions and things that you did and places where you got off track and you say, I blew it. And I would say to you, the past is prologue. You have your whole life ahead of you. You may say, well, I chose the wrong profession somewhere along the way. I'm not doing what I really wanted to do or what I think I should do. And I would say to you, the past is prologue. 
God's able to take wherever you are now and use that as the backdrop to what you will become. Don't let that define you. You may say, well, I failed professionally. My professional life hasn't worked out the way that I, that I thought it would. And I would say to you, the past is prologue. And how many times do we read of people who do great things, but only after they have gone through heartbreaking failure at one point where they're tempted to chuck it all and give it up, but they persevere through that. And all of a sudden, opportunities come that match their experience, match their skills, and their lives take off in a way that you would have never thought. The past is prologue. You may say, well, my biggest failure is in the realm of relationships. Maybe with your family, maybe with your spouse, maybe some other relationship that you failed in. And I would say to you, past is prologue. Make amends. Get a fresh start. Go again. And then some of you may just say, well, I'm, I'm just too old at this point. <laughs> I've lived my life. I, I made my choices. It's played out. Um, I, I'm just at the point where I don't really even think about the future. And I would say to you and to me, the past is prologue. The past is, is prologue. The Roman orator, politician Cato, when he was 80 years old, he decided that he would finally learn Greek. <laughs> and someone asked him, why would you learn Greek at 80 years old? And his answer was simply, it's the youngest age I have left <laughs> in life. <laughs> Some of you may be at that point where it's, you're at the youngest age you have left. The past is prologue. How is God going to use your life in the future? See, the point ultimately is that none of those things matter. God knows the truth about you. Peter says to Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. But the fact that Jesus knows all things about Peter and about you and about me doesn't limit his willingness or his ability to forgive you, and to use you. It doesn't limit it in any way, shape, or form. The past is simply prologue, Peter. And Jesus has something still in store for you. And so the fourth thing that happens in this encounter with Jesus is that Jesus gives Peter hope. I, I put it that way because I know some of you probably tire of alliteration. So you see, I, see what I did there? I threw you a little curve at the end. We went from revealing and refreshing and restoring simply to, to giving hope. If you really like alliteration, you could say Jesus redirects Peter if you want to go that, that route. But that's what happens in the last two verses here. He says, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, Peter, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. And you, and you may be thinking, where's the good news in that? You know, where's the hope in that? Be Jesus basically tells Peter, this is how you're going to die, Peter. 
know, tradition has told us that Peter died by crucifixion as well, except when he was, he finally, when they finally took him to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Savior. I want to be crucified upside down. And so they crucified him upside down. That's the tradition. But that's, that certainly jives with what Jesus is saying here. Someone's going to stretch your arms out and take you where you do not want to go. But this is the death that you will die that will glorify God. Where's the good news in that? Well, remember where Peter was. He was one who had denied the Lord three times to his greatest shame. And Jesus is telling him, Peter, there's going to come a day when you're going to stand for me. It's going to cost you your life but you won't deny me that day. And that's really the best thing that Peter can hear at that point, that he has a future where he won't deny the Lord. Bernard Malamud is the one author who wrote uh, the book, The Natural, that the movie was based on, the Robert Redford baseball movie with Glenn Close. And it's a story about a guy who uh, is is a, baseball phenom, but at some point he kind of drops off the radar for, I don't know, eight or 10 years. And then he reemerges later on as an older player and has this little short, brief uh, career. It's kind of a fairy tale sort of story. But in that book, Bernard Malamud says this, he says, we each have two lives, the life we learn with and the life we live after that the life we learn with, and then the life we live after that. If you want someone who may have a little more credibility in your mind than Bernard Malam, listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. He says, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. You can start where you are and change the ending. So friends, don't let your past define you. Don't let even where you are right now define you. What God does with grace is he opens a door of hope for each one of us. And the gospel is this, that because of Jesus and what he's done, the failure and the sin that I can't forget, God promises not to remember. Feed my sheep. Peter, fulfill your calling. Friends, fulfill your calling before God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in, in the gospel, failure is never final. And that in the story of, of Peter, we find one who failed so embarrassingly. And thankfully, you told the story of how you restored him. Father, we need that kind of restoration uh, pretty much daily. I pray that you would give to us a sense of what it means to be forgiven and even used in light of where we've been, what we've done and haven't done and where we find ourselves this morning. Thank you for the future that's ahead of us and the past is but a prologue to that. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.